This episode of Friends of Flow is brought to you by NCLEX Mastery. If you're a nursing student and you're about to take your NCLEX, you need to go to the App Store right now and download NCLEX Mastery. All right, welcome back, folks. This is Friends of Flow, and my name's Tess Judge Ellis. This is Andy Witters here. And I'm Rebecca Porter. We couldn't be happier to be back, all three of us together. I know, it's yeah. great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even luckier still to have Val Gar. Cue applause right now, Val Gar. Val is, I'll let her introduce herself, but she's the diversity and support. And st- I'm going to let you introduce yourself, Val, because <laughs> you have a lot of titles. And then I want to brag on you and your awards when uh, you're done with that. Okay. Uh, well, first of all, thank you. Uh, to all of you for inviting me. This sounds like a really fun group of people to be hanging out with. So <laughs> we so are. This is a bit of a party for me this morning. I kind of like starting my day this way. So I am the diversity and supplemental instruction coordinator for the College of Nursing. I also advise our Multicultural Nursing Association, which is largely made up of uh, nursing interest uh, students, but we do also have some students that are already in the BSN program and some grad students that also um, participate in, in MA. Uh, I'm also the co director, or excuse me, co chair of the College of Nursing uh, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. I'm going well. to say this is a College of Nursing at the University of Iowa. Yes. Right? Yes. Here in Iowa City. And bragging on Val, she just recently won the Iowa Board of Regents Staff Excellence Award. That's huge. That's um, statewide, including all of the three schools. Yes. And um, then also recently won the University of Iowa Diversity Catalyst Award, Distinguished, the first woman to receive that award. So we are fortunate to have you on board, Val. Thank you for having me. Welcome, Val. Thank you. Welcome, yes. So we're starting and continuing on, but starting really to focus in the next few pods on diversity issues, in particular uh, racism and challenging subjects and discussions around that. So we are going to start off with Val kind of giving us an idea of uh, the definition of diversity. Great. It's a great place to start. And I want to applaud you guys for tackling this subject because it seems like it's increasingly becoming more and more difficult to have real dialogues with people who are genuinely interested in wanting to learn from each other. And um we're at a time in our society right now where it seems like people aren't making an effort to sit down and listen to each other. Um, and so this is uh, important that you're doing this, I think. So the definition of diversity I have, and people probably, if you ask them, they would tell you um, a wide range of different things that are important to diversity. But the one that I have is one that I use a lot when I'm doing diversity uh, presentations or workshops. And this does not come from a health sciences uh, perspective. It actually comes from a social justice and student affairs um, definition, but it's one that I love. So um, it's a little bit long, but but hang, hang in there with me uh, because there's lots of important pieces to it. So in essence, diversity broadly, it includes all aspects of human and social group differences, including but not limited to race, gender, ethnicity, religion, economic status, size, language, sexual orientation, age, resident status, background, life experiences, ability, function, personality, culture, and worldview perspective. It's an umbrella term. So every person is in many respects, we're like all other people, we're like some other people, and we're like no other people. Diversity is a source of life's richness and excitement. It's also a source of discomfort and conflict. It's a way of helping people manage issues that are created by differences. 
It also gives us the opportunity to look at our assumptions and beliefs about differences, whether those differences are individual, cultural, geographical, environmental, or organizational. It also allows us to learn how to perceive ourselves and others as unique individuals while acknowledging our differences as members of particular groups. So the bottom line with diversity and what we're really charged with, I think, as as a human race is, what is our ability to see ourselves and others as equal, though not the same? That's cool. What do you like in particular about that, Val? What singles out for you? Because we've done a lot of work on cultural competence over the years and hit together with one another on that off and on, right? Yes, we have. Yeah. And so it kind of reminds me of the iceberg image, Mm -hmm. right? The tip of the iceberg. Which I use a lot. Yeah, right. And so it's a um, that, you know, we make our initial assumptions on the tip. But what's really underneath and the diversity aspects of it is is what's really rich. But tell me what you like about this. That's just like two points. Um, two points or three, maybe like bullets. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Um, number one, there is a level of simplicity in it that if we really start uh, thinking ourselves and our identities as layers that we can peel away when we get to the core of that is our humanity. Okay. That's the simplicity of it. The difficulty of it and the complexity of it is those layers and how those layers play out in systems how they play out in terms of individual experiences, life experiences that we have, but also how those layers play out within our individual collective histories or the groups that we belong to. So um, so to give a great example, um, you and I, Tess, are women, right? Rebecca, we're women. So we share some very common experiences culturally as women, okay? But if we drill down deeper as an African-American woman, my experiences are going to be very different than yours because you're not African-American. So there's simplicity there but and commonality, but there's also difference. And those differences are very real based off of an identity that I hold that you don't have. But it's not, sorry to interrupt. I, I'm thinking that it's also my willingness to engage with and think about what those differences mean. There absolutely is an attitude of moving forward, just acknowledging that we can't speak for anybody's experience, right, in things. And then I think that there's also a degree of safety in having conversations and that are that and being at the table, knowing that this all comes in a social context of history and being able to engage in a safe context conversation where, um, you know, like somebody, you know, Val being African American can say, no, 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 wait a minute, Tess, what I heard you say is this. And here's how I would respond to that from my differences or whatever. And we were we entered, you know, before we started the pod, we started talking about a contemporary issue that's going on right now. in Iowa, can you can you um, can we go back to that conversation quick? I think that's a great idea. I think it's a a great idea. What happened, Val? Um, You got a phone call from your friend. Yeah, that conversation. <laughs> that conversation, yes. Um, yes, a good friend of mine, Dave, and I don't know if Dave will ever be listening to this podcast, but maybe you will. <laughs> Hi, Dave, if you are out there. I'm, I'm talking about you lovingly, though. Um, Dave uh, is a white male, good friend of mine. I've known him since middle school. We were 
we did a lot of things together in high school, just good buddies of mine. And, and in fact, uh, when he uh, came to college here at the University of Iowa, uh, he ended up marrying my next door neighbor in the residence hall. So, so <laughs> very good friends. Um, and he lives in Minneapolis now, but he's a diehard uh, alumnus of Iowa and a diehard Hawkeye uh, sports fan. And so uh, he obviously follows uh, uh, Hawkeye basketball. And uh, um, while I love my Hawkeyes, I, I can't say that I'm always following uh, what's happening in the sports world here. Um, so he texted me yesterday uh, to ask me about uh, the whole situation with the uh, Hawkeye basketball announcer, Dolph. And uh, of course, I hadn't been following that. Well, recap what happened, because I don't, I didn't follow it either. Um, apparently, during uh, one of the Hawkeye basketball games, uh, the announcer was um, unintentionally, um, from what uh, he said, at least, that uh, he was trying to make this analogy to one of uh, an African American basketball player that he was King Kong, meaning that he was really, I guess, really good at what he was doing, or just relentless and and playing well or something like that and of course the reference of king kong uh, with an african-american uh is something that uh is hurtful uh because there's a long history um in this country of seeing african-americans as being less than human and i say i'm gonna interrupt a long history because uh it was constitutional it was constitutional I mean, it, break. Was it was institutional in the constitution. it was systemic. they had to have a constitutional amendment it was systemic. to say that african-americans were counted as one well and also say women, and women. yes for and that. women too right right, right, right but go right, ahead i right. mean long history is to right. say like it wasn't just behaviors it was actually right. written it was in systemic our constitution it was systemic and institutional well and then systemic by ways of like still is. jim crow laws it, well and absolutely and yeah. who could buy a house and all of these yeah, things absolutely. so anyway blah anyway. blah that goes off on yeah. a tangent but it's not like to say that it's just one yeah. thing is yeah. really okay it's, go ahead so uh um so dave wanted to know what my perspective was uh in a text and i thought oh right uh, this is <laughs> this is a simple question, but the response was way more complex than what I'm going to give in a text. And so, and I told him that, and so he understood. And so he calls me, and I told him, I said, "Well, you know, Dave, um, I can't give you the perspective from the African American, meaning that there probably, if you ask someone else who's black or African American, they may have a different perspective than what I'm going to throw out at you. But here's my thought about it in the minimal amount of knowledge that I had of, of the situation that number one, um, to make that um, connection uh, to an African American and to King Kong was wrong. Uh, obviously, the announcer was misinformed, um, not informed at all about history. And this is very disconcerting to me that um, there is a part of the American population who understands the history. We know the history. The other part, either they know it and they choose not to do anything about it, or they think that it doesn't matter, or they truly don't know. And so then we wonder why there's issues. Right. So it's either races. it's either ignorance, right? Or it's I know but it's dismissive because it doesn't seem to matter and I needed to make a point or it's a uh, um, knowledge and um, I don't know what your other third thing was, but it was like, yeah, I mean, so yeah, I want it. I think it's kind of- a good example. I mean, it's a good uh, leader lead way into like how to have conversations about these things, you know? Well, and it kind of leads me back to when you asked me to give the, the definition of diversity, I, it, this kind of leads into um, the four 
core responses that people tend to have both individually and systemically or institutionally about how they respond to diversity. So um, there's marginalization and that's where you just completely choose to avoid um, the issue of race or any type of diversity. Um, you treat it as though it's invisible. Um, you allow your biases to, to guide and determine what your thought process is. And obviously that impacts uh, your thought process always impacts your words and then your actions. Um, you also silence people who have differences and want to express those differences or to help you understand what those differences are. Um, there's also uh, a way of marginalizing people that can be very um, overt or aggressive. An example of that would be if you burn a cross on my front yard, that's pretty marginalizing and it's pretty overt what your meaning is. But there's also very covert ways to marginalize people. Um, if I'm sitting in a meeting, for example, and I'm the only African-American, and actually this has happened to me uh, at times here, um, uh, working here at this institution, but at other uh, places where I've been involved with in, in uh, planning meetings. Um, kind of an experiment that uh, myself and a friend of mine who was also African-American, we used to work in the same office together. Um, and uh, when we would go to meetings, we would always be the first ones to get there. And we experimented. I would sit at one end of the table, and then sometimes she would join me at the end of the table. And then as our colleagues came in, uh, all of them predominantly white, they would always sit at the opposite end of wherever we were at. So we noticed that. We both had been noticing that, and then we were talking about it. So I said, well, you know, next time you sit at one end of the table, and I'll sit at the other end of the table. <laughs> Same thing happened. So people, they sat in the middle, away from us. The only time that they would sit next to us is if we had a speaker coming in talking about diversity or if it was an African-American speaker. Oh, yeah. Then people would come and sit directly next to us. And we would notice that all the time. That's a very covert, subtle way of marginalization, though. Um, so that's And people just don't notice that in themselves or they... Maybe they do. Maybe they do. Maybe they do. There's also the issue of, of people who say they're colorblind. Again, their intent mm -hmm. may be that the, their intent may may be harmless in their mind, but the reality is, um, I'm proud of this color. Uh, you guys spent a lot of money buying tanning stuff and all that stuff to get this color. <laughs> right. I am natural. Right, right. right I know right. you all are down with brown. I know you're I down know. with brown. Oh, you know. <laughs> Because we see you in the summer working on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, oh, yeah, yeah. so for me let's to get deny, a little color, let's I need get a little real, color, you know? right? Yeah. So, I have a question. What does it mean to be colorblind? Um, well, you tell me because your community uses it, it more than mine it's does. Absolutely, I don't see. I see the person. It's still a. So it it has to it has to do with being ethnocentric versus ethno. Um, what's a relative? Mm -hmm. I can't remember. Ethno relativism. Right. So ethnocentric means that. I don't, I don't see your color when really color is what it's all about for living in a, in living in a quote targeted or, or group that's, um, stereotyped or ismed. It's like, it would, so Rebecca, it would be like, oh, Rebecca, your age doesn't matter. You know, you talk just a little bit about how you are. It's like saying, oh, well, the it's, I don't see your age. I see you, or I don't see that you're a woman. I see you. And it, oh, that's really dismissive. It, it is. Well, it says exactly. It's, it's so something and that's it comes very from, obvious. It's all well and good. It's all well and good to say that, but I feel patronized. But, I feel yeah, uh, separated. 
I feel not acknowledged. I feel dismissed. It's an important part of your identity that yeah. people are just deciding to to not even see. Right, right. So, and the risk is saying, like the other way well, of saying is, they might see it, it, but like, just choose not to acknowledge it. Well, and they'll say, yes, exactly, because uh, you know why it's done to maintain power and privilege mm-hmm. that is unearned, absolutely unearned, simply by being white male Christian, whatever, however you <laughs> want to define, yeah. you know, cisgender, whatever. So it's a. It's a way of saying, hey, it's more important that we're the same, mm-hmm. you know, as long as we're all alike like me. So it's what you would call ethnocentric. So and the same with marginalization is like a very defensive mechanism. It's a it's a um, like I see it, but I don't want to. Um, I'm not going to deal with it. Well, and then well, when you, and when even you... more microaggression like that. Right. Anyway, so right. But, like you were but even when you choose not not to acknowledge it, it also makes it easier for you to um, excuse yourself from the responsibility and ownership of making an effort to learn about someone's identity. So so that's marginalization. So it can be both, um, you know, I've, with the colorblind thing, it's interesting. I've, I've had white friends who have met well when they said it to me, and then I throw it back at them, and, and, and I do remind them. I say, well, you know, I'm proud of being black. I'm proud of having brown skin. So that's an important piece of, of who I am. It's an important piece of the person that you claim to like. So to to so even though I know that they they might think they're meaning well by calling me that that's that's not uh, it's not a good thing to ever be colorblind because you know if we have the gift of being able to see colors you know although I know that there are some people that are colorblind that's one thing but I but I mean if we have the gift of of being able to see colors um, hmm. you know why is it that we're happy to see colors in a crayon box but all of a sudden when it comes to people we want to deny that. That makes no sense to me. Because, so. you know, my skin is kind of peachy. And yours is kind of caramel. Which is when brown. we were little kids and we colored white people, we used the peach cream oh, for geez. it. So. Really? Oh, right? Yeah. Well, because, <laughs> because your skin not? is not completely white. And, I'd be like, and I never used the black cream color. I no, used brown. And I want to see, like, is there a caramely brownish? There are many beautiful shades of brown. I love it. <laughs> yes. And so, but I got exactly. I have a little peach with some aging signs in here. And, and yet, so, well, let's turn our hands over. Yeah. There you go. I know. So wow. we have a lot to learn from uh, us uh, in terms of how we should see ourselves. We're, we're, we have, you know, it just makes no sense the way people address uh, race issues in terms of color. So so that's marginalization. The other way that uh, we respond to diversity, both individually, organizationally, and systemically, is through the reform. And that's where the assimilation piece comes into play that you were kind of talking about. So the idea is you know what, if you could just be more like me, you know, you won't have to worry about those differences right. in you. The, um, it's very, it, um, it's, it's saying that you should be more like the privileged group. It's, it's, um, it's, uh, not accounting for the, uh, impact that, uh, individual, uh, uh, histories and collective group histories might play in a person's life and development. Um, it's has a very entitled attitude, which is, you know, if you were more like me, things would be just fine. And the example I always love to give with that is, um, you know, when Oprah Winfrey uh, shops like you and I do on Saturdays, and that means, you know, she's, you know, not all dollied up. She's wearing her jeans and, you know, looking, you know, not necessarily wearing the makeup. And she went shopping on Madison Avenue, the right, uh, New York, where the big shops are, the expensive shops are. And you and I all know that Oprah could buy this university out and just about every other town out. She, that's how wealthy she is. And she tells the story when she went into a store and um, was looking to buy stuff. And there was a, a, a worker, um, 
there who um, kind of made some comments offhand, some microaggressive comments to the extent of, well, you know, I don't think we have any here, anything here in the shop that, you know, is for you or that you could afford. And it wasn't until somebody else noticed that it was Oprah Winfrey that, of course, this woman's, uh, um, the cashier's or a salesperson's uh, 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 tone changed. The point of that is that, you know, here is somebody who maybe people see as assimilated. She's wealthy. She's educated. She's got money. And still, it did not matter. It was her skin color right. that people saw. Right. So... The reformed viewpoint or, or way of, of responding to diversity is not always the best way either. So, and it's also like a, what I also hear is, well, just give it some time. Things will get better. Just give it time. You know, like like there shouldn't be this insistence of certain people f- of color or whatever minority saying this is, but certainly people of color saying our time is now. Black Lives Matter now. You know, versus like the response to that that I see as ethnocentric as well. Just give it some time. It'll work. And don't, what do you think about that? I mean, that kind of like that response of, well, it, it's changing. Give it time. Well, I will say that if anybody who's involved in, in social justice or diversity, equity, inclusion work, um, if you don't know how to meet people where they're at and to be patient in it, this is not your gig because right. change change does not happen no, 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 no. fast at all. No, and there are times it. there's highs and lows in it. There are um, celebratory moments. And then there are moments where uh, real anger and real frustration as a result of it. So, um, you know, um, for think about where we're at societally now um, for the for all the advances that we may have made. In terms of race right now, look at where we're still at. Look at why we're still having t- these concerns with people not being comfortable having conversations about race, particularly, um, is uh, is one of the, the, the diversity topics that people have the most discomfort in talking about. Mm-hmm. We live in a, in a with a generation that has more technology, that has more opportunities for them to make relationships with people around the globe around the globe and they still still struggle well with we feeling can... connected yes. do you have a couple more points on that I yeah mm-hmm. um tolerance is the third uh way both individually and organizational and systemically that we might respond to diversity so with tolerance we're, we're kind of now moving a little bit more towards uh good intentions but we're still lacking um some of our awareness um we still don't necessarily understand the impact of real diversity how skills does, how does that differ from marginalization well let, let me finish uh, okay sorry that. that's okay um tolerance is still very uh, kind of PC oriented, more politically correct oriented. So that means, you know, we'll window dress the topic, but you know, it's kind of like, you know, you, you have dirt on your floor in your house rather than really clean up the dirt. You just put a rug over it, you know, so that way you can say, well, you know, yeah, we're working towards it. You know, Um, there's still no real effort for individuals to do their personal work or to even think about the impact that systems might have on it. So tolerance is, is good intentions and you're getting there, but you're not quite there. Um, that's the difference to answer your question, the difference between marginalization and tolerance is marginalization. You are completely cutting out any thoughts of, of trying to do any personal work at all. At least with tolerance, you're trying to make a small effort to it, but you still may not be there yet. Well, the, the fourth way that we hope that people will respond both individually, organizationally, and systemically to diversity is what we call valuing. And this is where you're embracing equal worth 
You're seeing mutual benefits and differences, both physical, emotional, and environmental belonging, because we know that when people um, um, feel emotionally safe, they feel physically safe. And so that's important. Um, you're engaging in reciprocal respect and dialogue. And that's important when we think about in the uh, healthcare setting. Um, you, as a nurse, are going to be the experts in the medical and the healthcare side. But if you're working with somebody who's from a different culture than you, they're the expert. So it shouldn't just be only your voice in there. It should be their voice as well. So that's really key to have these reciprocal uh, respect and dialogue. The other important piece about valuing is um, you can actually become a, an agent for change and you can implement um, cultural responsiveness. And when you do that, that's how we actualize the concept of inclusion within your infrastructure. And that's really important. So um, getting nurses, especially if you're a nurse who's in a leadership role, uh, when you uh, exercise uh, diversity in the terms of valuing uh, and actually implement that, you have tremendous ability to be a change agent. So Val, summarize those points for us uh, that you talked about. So the, um, as I said, there are four uh, core, um, common, worldwide, individual, organizational, systemic responses that we have to diversity. The first one is marginalization. The second one is reform. The third one is tolerance. And the fourth one is valuing. And the first, those first three are still from an ethnocentric perspective. Very much so. And then there's this sort of switch that happens where you start to, through education, through systemic ways of implementing things, mm -hmm. there's a switch toward valuing, which is, you know, the cornerstone of moving into cultural competence and to, you know, however we're framing that, cultural awareness, cultural humility, and all of those things. Absolutely. Well, all right. Let's, um, thanks. I think it's about time for a break. So we're Friends of Flow. Um, Tess, Rebecca, and Andy here with our guest, Val Gar. Here at NCLEX Mastery, we love nurses and especially nursing students, but we need your feedback about this podcast. If you have ideas on topics or you have questions you want us to answer, shoot us a message, leave a comment, go to our Facebook page and just tell us what you think because we want to help you in the most specific way that you need that help. Thank you so much. All right. So this is Friends of Flow and we're back. I'm, Re uh, I'm I was going to say I was Rebecca. What? Okay. Hi, it's Friends of Flow, and we're back, and it's um, Tess, Tess, uh, Judge Ellis, Rebecca Porter, and Andrew Witters, and we are here on Friends of Flow with Val Gar. And so we ended up our last session talking about responses that we make individually, societally, uh, organizationally, structurally, to um, ideas of diversity and our personal responses. And we kind of want to move into nursing, I think. And in specifically into our field and of study. And so, and you know, I'm always interested in how, uh, in cultural competence and how we can keep moving forward, even knowing that a lot of our listeners are nurses or nursing students and may or may not may say, you know, this intrigues me. And I want to know a little bit more about um, nursing and about um, like what to do on a... Oh, individual level, maybe as it may be, I'm just an RN or I'm a nursing student. What sort of um, behaviors can I and undertake or what sort of things should I be watching out for? Great. Um, th 
Um, there's so many things that, that people can actually do. And I think that's one of the things about diversity that sometimes people um, who don't feel like they know the history or um, I realize that, that people get afraid, they're worried that, you know, am I going to say the wrong thing? And so if I'm worried about uh, saying the wrong thing, then guess what? I'll just ignore it or keep it invisible. And so um, there are little things as well as big things. There are individual things as well as group things that, that people, um, that nurses can do specifically. So um, I'm just going to read off a few things um, that are called steps uh, to cultural competence. And again, uh, when I uh, do diversity workshops and presentations, I um, use this a lot. And um, some of this uh, comes from a health uh, sciences uh, um, perspective, but but some of it does not. So, so I'm just going to read a few of them. And then if you feel like you want to jump in and talk about them, we can do that. Um, so one thing is, is just uh, making yourself, um, becoming aware of yourself and others. And that means um, exercising emotional intelligence. And the thing about emotional intelligence is um, uh, it gives you an opportunity to um, assess your own biases, your own uh, assumptions about people, um, to pay attention to the impact uh, of privilege. And that means looking at your identity and saying, you know, is there something about my identity where I might have more access to opportunities or where I have more opportunities to be a decision maker um, or that I'm able to uh, have more resources than perhaps somebody else who has an identity that's different from mine. And that's a hard thing a hard question to ask because no, none of us wants to think that we have an identity that holds privilege and holds more benefits over somebody else. None of us likes to think that way, but that is the reality of, of who we are and where we're at as, as, as a world. So, um, so knowing that you might have more privilege over somebody else because of your identity doesn't make you a bad person. Um, but if you want to be a more culturally responsive and a more culturally competent uh, professional, then it's asking the question. So, and it gets at like the, what is the identity, do you know? And, and acknowledging identity of privilege, correct? That is generally something that we've not earned, right? It's something that is kind of, we have no choice that we were born white or that you were born black, that I feel really guilty sometimes because I, I see myself as really privileged. And here's what we say about that, that um, don't put your energy towards guilt because guilt isn't going to move you forward. Right. And and I don't need to hear as a person of color, I don't necessarily want to hear about how guilty you might feel. What I want to hear is how you, um, that you know that that privilege exists and how you feel that you will work in order to help dismantle uh, the concept of, of privilege, white privilege, or any other type of privilege that, that, that's out there. Um, I'm assuming all of us sitting here at the table, one privilege that we all hold in common is that we're, we're college educated, right? For sure. For sure. So, so there's a privilege that we all share, regardless of race, right? But if we drill down and look at the larger number of people in the world that don't have a college degree or access to or access it. to education. We drill down to women around the world and young girls that don't have have opportunities to be educated. So again, it's looking at our privileges and understanding that we hold different and multiple privileges that at 
different points in society and in the system or in the infrastructure, um, we those are our privileges that we have, but in some cases they might not be privileges. But it's how we choose to acknowledge that privilege and then how we choose consciously to say, I am going to take this responsibility very seriously and and then choose which pathway. Um, exactly. Because guilt, shame, and, and, you know, those are obviously natural emotions that, that you may feel. But if you stay stuck on that, then how can you work towards dismantling something? Um, and here's the other important thing. And I usually start out my diversity conversations with, with people um, that – uh, particularly when people talk about wanting to be an ally and, and all that. You're, this is my comment. I tell this to all my, my good white friends, and you all, <laughs> you all know who you are out there, <laughs> including, I'll say, Flo's friends here. These are, these are some good folks right here. Um, you can't be my ally or my advocate if I can't have the conversation with you. So if I have to hide any part of my identity because of your discomfort, and usually with, if, if um, the whole marginalization thing, that's really about your discomfort with my identity, your lack of knowledge about my identity. So that's why you don't want to address it. If I have to cover that up because you're uncomfortable, how can you be my ally or advocate for something that you don't understand? If we can't have the conversation, don't come to me saying you're going to be my ally and my advocate because I have to hide who I am to make you feel comfortable. I can't do that. And that's one thing that I try to, with our nursing students, of all races. I try to make them understand that because the nursing profession is about working with, as you know, vulnerable populations, vulnerable people at, at, at a time where they're looking for trust in their care. And um, that trust starts with the ability for me to be able to come to you and say, this is who I am. This has been my life experiences. This is what's, this is how this particular illness or experience has impacted my health. If I have to hide that from you, um, it's not going to be an authentic relationship. Well, and I think um, that's absolutely true. And so for, um, I think for people who are um, African-American or of color, however, it's okay to say that, then it's like right out the bat. It's naturally, that's always out there, do you know? And so it's a um, it's how we move forward in a way to engage to promote trust. It's a professional stance. It's a professional ethic. It's a moral aspect of profession. But that implies that we do look at ourselves and our bias, and our implicit bias. And how can we not? Right? I mean, how can we not have bias? We're raised in a racist society. We used to talk about it as, well, from a societal level, as like a smog. Right. Yeah. And so sometimes we're in the thick of the smog mm-hmm. um, and sometimes it's just very light smog, but it's always there. Right. And that means that that even if our experience, we think, quote unquote, that we're not entering into it with bias, we are simply by virtue of not being able to have dialogue or or anything. So it's it's a posture of the humility that we talk about. Right. 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 And so. Uh, yeah, our job as educators, but our job as nursing students and nurses, yeah. Which I'm proud to say that the, it, here at the University of Iowa College of Nursing, we have uh, what we call the seven pillars of diversity. 
And the whole idea of the seven pillars of diversity came about because we had created our own uh, climate assessment tool and we administered that to our faculty and staff. And one of the things we wanted to know is, you know, um, um, how do you define diversity? How do you in, use diversity in terms of your research service or teaching? Um, what, um, how well do you feel our college um, uh, addresses issues of uh, diversity? Uh, and, I'm, and I mean, broad, broadly defined. So looking at race, uh, sexual orientation, um, age, et cetera. And some of the results that came out of that, that survey was really quite informative for us. And, the, and that was that um, while there's a lot of, of uh, desire to uh, make sure that diversity is an integral part of our curriculum and the things that we do in our college, there was some discomfort in terms of how do how do I incorporate it, you know? And so um, the seven pillars of diversity came about with our diversity committee because we thought, you know what, can we find a way to break this down so people understand that, you know, you don't have to be as stressed out as you think you have to be about it, that there are some, <laughs> some simple ways yeah, that yeah. you can actually... Uh, um, incorporate diversity and inclusion. And so uh, the first pillar is awareness. And awareness is just simply being mindful that there are different identities out there. That's no big deal. There are different identities out there, right? Um, And that we all carry these identities everywhere we go. Um, And sometimes those identities, uh, some identities might come to the forefront more so than others, depending upon what the setting or the environment or the situation is. But the reality is we all bring different identities to the table. So it's just being mindful of that. The second one is integrity. And that is focusing on the role and the importance that nurses have in making sure that you're meeting the um, the professional and social justice standards that are set aside by the American um, Association of Colleges of Nursing and also the American Nursing Association. Our code which, of ethics. That's right, your code of ethics. And so when you are are, are practicing and implementing those code of ethics, um, that means that you are incorporating social justice. You are being mindful of, of making sure that you are making uh, learning about cultural competency a lifelong uh, thing, which is uh, one of the uh, competency essentials. Uh, um, and when you do that, then you are actually implementing and practicing integrity with your patients uh, because your patients don't know that, that you are somebody that is taking to heart what that code of conduct says, and you see that as part of your professionalism. So there's integrity is one of our pillars. Caring is another pillar, um, and that's the double entendre one because obviously nurses care for people, right? That's an integral part of your profession. But we wanted to break down what caring really means in, in the long haul. And that breakdown came to caring simply just means embracing somebody else's reality. And that reality could be very different than yours. It could be a reality that that is so intangible to you that you've never even thought about it before. But without judgment, if you truly are wanting to care about people, you have the ability to embrace that reality and say, sure. you know, I'm sorry you're going through this or that this is your experience. Something I've never would have thought of before, but I'm thankful that you shared this with sure. me. Sure. It's the lived experience. Nursing cares about the lived experience. Exactly. All right. What's four? Four is respect. I should have these memorized. Do you realize that, Val? <laughs> That's okay. I know. It's okay. I'm just saying. I, I have know. to remind myself. And I'm thinking, well, and I'm thinking, okay, now, okay, what's my course? How am I covering these in my course that I teach? Okay. So the fourth one is is respect. And we have that one in the as the center pillar uh, because of the fact that, um, uh, number one, our, our the University of Iowa uh, had a campus-wide campaign a few years back. Um, 
um, called um, about respect. And so we wanted to make sure that that remained uh, as, as an important pillar. And there's a lot of, you know, talk about, you know, people aren't giving me my respect and all this kind of stuff. But the reality is this, that uh, what we've uh, defined respect as uh, taking accountability for your attitudes, your actions, and your words. Because when you truly want to um, give respect to other people, then you will take some accountability for that. Um, But also it starts first by having some self-respect. And that means um, taking the moment to do the self-reflection to say, what am I thinking about this group? How does that impact the words that I'm using? And and then how does that uh, frame my behaviors? So respect, accountability for your attitudes, your uh, words, and your behaviors. And then the next uh, pillar is learning. And again, uh, uh, we are, of course, the University of Iowa is a great uh, higher education institution of learning, right, as many other places are out there. Um, But we wanted to take that deeper and uh, remind um, our students that uh, when it comes to the the pillar of diversity, that learning is... um, how do you um, take the things that you're learning in the classroom and actually integrate it into uh, real world experiences? And so it's uh, acquiring and integrating those um, experiences into the work that you do. And also uh, being mindful that learning is lifelong. And one thing that I always tell our, our nursing students is that, you know, you're in a profession, too, that we know has been tremendously impacted by technology. Technology is changing everything around the world, right, including the way that healthcare delivery is happening. And so you're going to spend a, li- a lifetime as a nurse constantly having to learn about these new technologies, right? So if all you're doing is learning about new technologies or the latest research, which is all important stuff, but you're not learning about the, the different populations of people, and the different identities and differences of those different uh, populations of people, um, then in one respect, you're not doing your profession a service, and you're certainly not doing your patients a service. Or yourself, yeah. Or yourself. What was that, number five? So that was learning. Was that five? Okay, I'm going to say we're going to take a short break. Okay. And then we'll come back with the six and seven. Right. This is Friends of Flow. Here at NCLEX Mastery, we love nurses and especially nursing students, but we need your feedback about this podcast. If you have ideas on topics or you have questions you want us to answer, shoot us a message, leave a comment, go to our Facebook page and just tell us what you think because we want to help you in the most specific way that you need that help. Thank you so much. And now we're back with Friends of Flow. To This is Tess, Rebecca and Andy, and we're here with Val Gar, and we're Reviewing uh, University of Iowa's seven, seven pillars, pillars of diversity, right. correct? All That's right. Correct. And so, okay. So pillar number six is collaboration. And this is um, helping to teach our, our nursing community how to work uh, across different ranks, different disciplines, uh, different backgrounds, because that's really important. We know that nurses work in teams. Um, but uh, those teams certainly are health sciences uh, teams, but also understanding that even within your health sciences teams, people are still bringing their different and multiple identities to the table. And there's tremendous opportunities there's tre- uh, for um, learning, but also for growth. And if you take this out of the realm of, of health sciences and think about you know your Fortune 500 companies, many of those CEOs will tell you that their greatest ability to problem solve and innovate happens when they bring a team of diverse people 
people together. Oh, for sure. So if that's true in the in the world of business and industry, we know that it's got to be true in other mm-hmm. uh, arenas as well. So collaboration is really key. And then the final um, pillar that we have is cultural humility. And this is getting back to the pieces that we've already been talking about, um, which is the self-reflection piece. Asking yourself to check your biases, check your privilege, privileges, understand how might my identity either be enhancing or detracting from the types of relationships that I want to build with other people, with my patients, with uh, people in, in the community that maybe I want to do some community-based participatory research with? Um, how, do, how might my identity uh, be framing how they might see me? Um, so it's not focusing on what I need to know about the, about the minority population. This is saying, I need to check myself first. And that's the piece of the um, work that really needs to be done by people um, um, who say that they value diversity and social justice. If you're not out there doing your own personal work, taking some time to do some self-reflection um, and asking yourself, wow, what are aspects of my biases or my privileges or um, things that I don't know about populations? If you're not asking yourself these questions, um, you're not fully committing to this process. And I would say if you are not, if you're feeling listening to this right now, that uncomfortable, you know, then I think that's okay. It is okay. It's okay to feel uncomfortable when listening to um, the need to ask questions about your own personal bias and privilege, mm-hmm. because that's a good spot to be. It and is. that means that you're, that you're being confronted with the fact that um, you live in a society of um, and possibly privilege that you have benefited from this. And now you're thinking to yourself, Hey, whatever. I think that that's okay. I would ask people to reach out to somebody to talk to about that or do some writing and not push it aside and get into that marginalization or that quote tolerance area. Right. 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 And so um, that would be more what we would call a defensive posture because it's kind of weird to think that I might be being unknowingly, um, race racist or unknowingly contributing to the problem. Right. And so that would be a really interesting thing to bring to back to a class that you're in, um, to be a leader and talk about it at, with somebody that, uh, that has different skin color than you. And you want to talk about that, or maybe somebody who is, um, gay or lesbian or trans or somebody who has an obvious physical disability and say, Hey, I never realized that this might be going on. And not to think that, you're a bad person about it, you know, right. because you can't be perfectly culturally humility. I mean, nobody's perfect. And right. we'd have to be born in like 150 countries speaking I, that's what a I always million say. different languages. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Of, of you all can sorts strive of different to religions, be, right? Be culturally proficient, but that's exactly, you'd yeah. have to travel to every part of the world, eat every kind of food, practice every kind of religion, listen, uh, listen to every kind of music, dance, every kind of culture. I'm exhausted. I haven't even gotten on a no plane kidding. yet. I think the assumptions that we make oh, yeah, big time. Are, are just oh, yeah. so huge. And I, you know, like, I find my myself when I check myself I'm just making all these uh, nurses are really good about little judgy things well you know to us an extent we do this all the time in healthcare because yeah, we're observing we put it under the thing oh nurses are good observers but unless you're doing holding a mirror up to yourself mm-hmm. and saying what are my assumptions right. not my observations right. that's different that's this different. is true right. and we make you know, then this gets into the idea of stereotyping, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so 
it's a, but in healthcare, you have to make what I call cognitive shortcuts. Mm -hmm. You have to, you cannot talk for 25 minutes to somebody about somebody's, you know, all of their background. So you might say, this is a, you know, rural person who is and so you can kind of group people into a cognitive shortcut, and but you would some, never want to stereotype. And yet there are some identities that storytelling is the way in which I am going to, to talk to you. Tell me about it. So if you are not, Great if idea. you are somebody that's, you know, chop, 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 you know, I need, I need my shortcut. You're going to have a hard time. So when I talk to the me. surgeon, then I have to do my shortcut. That's right. They when have I'm attention to, deficit disorder. Right. Well, I mean, they're, they're well, they busy. are, well, let's, know, like, let's stereotype our surgeons. Which yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like, I'm, really, I'm very they good at take this. It. I think they can take it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You just have to so, give them equal time on this right. program. <laughs> yeah. yeah so, right, the, um, right. so, you know, how I talk to another nursing friend about a pay, you know, the kind of like, I don't know how it is, but you know, nurses love to tell stories, yeah. and so it's, it's very healthy to well, tell and when stories. I'm, I'm, it's interesting. More and more, when I talk to physician colleagues or whoever about transitioning care, I'll say, "If you'll give me a minute to give some context," <laughs> and if they're people who get me, sometimes they'll say, "Yeah," and so I'll say, "This is why it'll be important for you to take a little extra time." And here's where I think I think it's almost like being a bridge to getting good care and being an advocate. Sometimes. But I also think it's it's also speaks to again to the times that we're in. We're at a time too where people are used to getting their information fast. Yes. And making fast decisions based off of that information, even if they don't have the full decision. We see that intermediate right now. It's who can get the information out there first. Whether versus, it's accurate or whether, not. Exactly. Correct. So, yeah. So I think again, that's part of the the doggedness of really being committed to saying, you know, if I'm going to do this, I want to do this as, as well as I can. And I want to be mindful of the time that it takes. Diversity does take time because you're talking about talking to individuals. You're talking about, you know, learning about people. You're, you're, you're talking about making sure that we're asking the right kind of questions up front. So um, time does become also an important piece of the diversity conversation. There is one thing, too, I wanted to mention, and I, I pulled this piece from uh, Inside Higher Education, and the, the author is Bedelia Nicola Richards, and she's an associate professor of sociology at the University of Richmond. And um, um, I wanted to acknowledge her because I thought this was an interesting uh, opinion piece that she wrote. Her um, It's focusing on what are the questions that institutions, or you can substitute the word institutions, facilities, should ask themselves to determine if they are operating in a racist way. And so question number one was uh, that you should ask yourself is, which group or groups feel most at home in the environment and which ones feel like unwanted guests? Um, because, and and particularly, we tend to use the percentage of underrepresented people um, as evidence of our commitment to diversity. So again, it's looking at numbers, but numbers don't guarantee that there's inclusion. Diversity doesn't guarantee inclusion. So asking yourself who feels most at home and who who doesn't, and then what are might be the symbols out there that indicate that some people feel more comfortable than others, okay? The next question is, Whose norms, values, and perspectives does the institution consider to be normal or legitimate? Who does it silence, marginalize, or delegitimize? Again, thinking about um, what are the cultural norms that dictate what it means to dress, to act professionally, um, what types of microaggressions and harassment might exist because someone who uh, doesn't fit uh, that norm uh, is operating. 
The third question, who inhabits positions of power within the institution? Who are the decision makers? When you go to the board meetings or the, the council meetings or other, other uh, groups, who's making those decisions? And what do the faces uh, of that, that team look like? Um, number four, whose experiences, norms, values, and perspectives influence an institution's laws, policies, and systems of evaluation? And that piece is important, the evaluation piece, because oftentimes even in evaluation and assessment, how well is diversity really considered in part of those assessment results and outcomes? Um, number five, whose interests does the inst institution protect? So when things, you know, oftentimes people say, yeah, I'm down with diversity. But then when they push comes to shove and something comes to the surface, how well do people really stand in the struggle? Or does somebody protect them so they don't have to stand in the struggle? Yeah. So it's about feeling safe, you know, to be yourself. Yeah. We need to get that citation. Mm -hmm. uh, here I can, I'll and we can it post it's it. From up. The, it's from inside higher education. Um, and it was uh, submitted by uh, professor Bedelia Nicola Richards on May 25th, 2018. So people can Google that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, Val, I think you're leaving us um, wanting more. Yeah, we get time with you. And it's yeah. good because, you know, I see you at the college, but we never get to have a chat. I know. This is so exciting. We, you know, many times Tess and I will see each other and we're, we're you know, we're just like, oh, how's it going? And I hear, Running the, in opposite. I hear the exciting things that she's doing in her classroom, talking about diversity and which I'm so thankful for because um, I think it's Im imperative that um, if we're going to prepare the 21st century uh, uh, nurses to uh, respond to the demographic changes that are already happening. This is not about when it happens. It is already happening across um, our country, let alone around the globe, that um, this should not be something that's a sidebar. It should be mm -hmm. integrated fully into the program. It should be, um, uh, it, we need to remind our, all nursing students at all levels that it's part of their professionalism standards. It's part of their code of conduct. It should be uh, um, reminded to them that even as they work professionally, that they need to continue to make sure that they are participating in culturally uh, competent uh, learning uh, development opportunities. And I do want to mention real quickly um, here at the university of Iowa, we host a um, culturally responsive in Healthcare Iowa Conference. And um, it, this is a conference that actually was started initially uh, by um, Sheree Wilson, who at the time was uh, uh, in the College of Medicine uh, uh, diversity uh, person, uh, myself, and Luann Montgomery from University of Iowa uh, Hospital and Clinics in the Nursing Department. And um, it's now coordinated by the College of Medicine predominantly, but all of the University of Iowa Health Sciences uh, schools, colleges um, help co-sponsor as well as the uh, hospital and several other places. And so this year, the conference is going to be on Friday, March, or excuse me, Friday, May 31st. Uh, 2019, and it will be held at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. And so I know many of you out there, um, if you ever want to come to Iowa City uh, during that time for this conference, it's a great opportunity to uh, learn more about cultural competence uh, and your role. Um, it is for physicians, nurses, uh, um, social workers, chaplains. social workers, anybody who wants to learn more about it. But um, and um, there are opportunities for 
uh, earning CEUs as well. So I just wanted to share that. And, and I'll endorse that. It's a really wonderful conference every year. It's hugely attended, and the reviews of it are are really, really great. I would love to see some opportunities for those nurses out there who are doing, uh, particularly having a lot of focus in uh, in your work with cultural competence and diversity uh, in clinical settings. I would love to to think about having you come and, and be a keynote speaker or do a workshop presentation. So, um, How do um, people get hold of you, Valerie? Well, uh, my email address is just Valerie-Gar at uiowa.edu. And how do we spell Gar? G-A-R-R, and Valerie is V-A-L-E-R-I-E. Yes, and it's uiowa.edu. It is. Yeah, it is. Oh, Val. <laughs> Val, thank you so much. We have to have you back Really soon. Thank you. Thank you. Really there's too many things that yeah. we need too to keep talking about. Too many more things to keep talking about. And there's about. one other quick thing I want to say. So a shout out to Andy. Um, because <laughs> I do think, I want to say this too, because I think oftentimes um, if there are uh, white males out there who are listening, I think sometimes in the diversity dialogue, there's a, a, a mindset too that um, maybe you don't feel connected because maybe you've gone to too many diversity workshops or presentations where uh, everybody comes down on the white male. And it's like, well, because it's a paternal system. And we know that there's some real uh, reasons for why that happens. But I want to say this, that um, we need your voice and your work in this effort as well as white women, as well as women of color, as well as men of color. We need white men to also um, uh, be change agents because much of the leadership that happens in, in a lot of industry uh, across disciplines is white males. And so there is a need for, for white men to be educated and to, to uh, practice diversity in the valuing level um, um, in order for us to see change happen as well, too. I agree. That's why we should have you back, actually. I think there's a lot more to chew on here. Yeah, yeah at least two or three more lot, times. Yeah. A lot more stuff that we could chew on. But I am thank you for this time and wish everybody a great day and, and keep keep fighting the good fight. And that's a good way. This is Friends of Flow signing out. I'm Tess, Judge Ellis, and keep your eye on the patient. This is Andy Witters here telling you to innovate, agitate, and educate. And this is Rebecca telling you to keep your stick on the ice. <laughs> Friends of Flow is brought to you by NCLEX Mastery. Go to the App Store right now, download NCLEX Mastery. And before you leave, if you could just share this with your nursing friends. Tell them about us. Leave us feedback. Go to our Facebook page. Tell us what you liked. Tell us what you didn't love so much. Be nice. But thank you so much. We really appreciate you.